Hi everyone. Before we get started, we want to ask for your help. Boom is wrapping up its third year, which is hard to believe. So we want to ask for your feedback on how Boom can better serve you and the biomechanics community. So if you have five minutes, please fill out the survey, which is available in the show notes. And we'll also post it on our Twitter account at biomechanicsoom. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's It's time time for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And today we talked with Dr. Elizabeth Russell Esposito. So Elizabeth is a research biomedical engineer and works for the Department of Defense Extremity Trauma and Amputation Center of Excellence at the Center for Limb Loss Mobility, or CLIMB. We just had a great conversation. We talked about her research on multifunctional processes that, and how we can make them more personalized about what's important to the person that's using it. We also talked about what it's like to work for the Department of Defense, the important role team science has played in her career and how it's able to help her make a better impact um, through her work. So um, we talked about so many different things and learned, yeah. Learned a lot as usual. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there were so many points where it was like, oh yeah, Melissa and I love like this, or we truly believe in this, or we're super passionate about this. It was just super connecting and just really inspiring as well. Yeah. Well, we're really excited to share that. And before we get started, we will share a bit of boom. Boom, bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. So I found an article by Hulfen Zhang and colleagues at the Shandong Sport University in China, and this was published in the journal Biomechanics in December of 2020, so a recent article. And it was motivated by the fact that there's over a million stair-related injuries reported in the U.S. annually, (laughs) of which I feel like I account for like 999,000 of them. And, and I'm the, the, other one. <laughs> yeah, the other one. But like apparently young adults in their 20s account for 20% of stair-related injuries. So like <laughs> based on my experiences adds up or probably is even higher. But they decided to have participants perform a text-based math task on a phone to simulate real life situations and represent a cognitive motor combined task. So I think they were testing to see if the reason that we young adults in their 20s are accounting for so many stair-related injuries could perhaps (laughs) be that we are texting and using our phones while going up and down the stairs. A wild accusation. (laughs) I don't know where they're getting these these facts. So they evaluated dynamic stability and the mechanisms of stability control during stair descent considering the influence of gait velocity. And they found that during texting, a sagittal margin of stability increased to right foot landing, but there's no difference in frontal margin of stability. And then also step cadence, double support percentage, joint moments, and frontal plane joint angles decreased. 
but then there is no difference in step length and step width between the two conditions. So in other words, they concluded that in young adults, a concurrent text-based math task impaired the sagittal and frontal stability control during stair descent, despite the fact that they were actually slowing their step cadence. So even though they're slowing down, it's not actually like helping with stability. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. They suggest that one possible explanation is that the attentional competition theory dominates in dynamic stability control during stair descent while performing a concurrent cognitive motor combined task. So it seems like they're just the attention to the texting and the cognitive part of that is dominating this dynamic stability part. And so they conclude mm-hmm. the individual should avoid texting during stair descent. And I also think this is true, like for going up the stairs, because like, I also have an issue like going upstairs. And I also feel like I fall down the stairs every time I'm wearing a pair of socks going down the stairs. Like whenever I forget this and whenever I'm visiting at home and I like, I try to go down the carpeted stairs in socks, I just like always end up falling. Um, Just like sliding down the stairs. Um, So honestly, socks might be a bigger hazard than texting, but I think both of those should be avoided. So that's our bit of boom and PSA. <laughs> so in this holiday season, everyone be careful, beware. Yes. <laughs> Take caution. This holiday season, just put your phone away when you're going up the stairs and get the socks with the little tacky rubber at the bottom of them. And everyone, we, we can decrease that number. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can get below a million <laughs> if we work together. Oh, anyway, what about you, Hannah? You have a fun bit of boom for us. Yeah, thank you. That was a super relatable bit of boom. (laughs) Mine, actually, I've been thinking about too. Sort of, it's been relatable because I've been sick the past couple of weeks and been taking my temperature. You know, when you're sick, you're sort of always monitoring your temperature to kind of see the status of what your sickness is doing and Mm -hmm. how hard your body is fighting. So. When I came across this article that was actually published in eLife and dated January 2020, so sort of in the future, by (laughs) Myroslava and Brodziv and her colleagues, it was from Stanford, the body, they found that the body temperature of the U.S. population has actually been decreasing since the Industrial Revolution, which I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah, please elaborate. Yeah, so apparently they were able to follow, or they followed three cohorts, the Union Army Veterans of the Civil War, the national, those from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, and those from the Stanford Translational Research Integrated Database Environment. Basically, just these three ho- cohorts totaling over 189,000 people. Yeah, different- that's a lot of people. Right. So they've got they've got a pretty high N and they had multiple readings from multiple people. So I think they ended up having over almost 700,000 different temperature recordings from all these different people. And they they had different genders and ethnicities and determined that mean body temperature in both men and women after adjusting for age, height, weight and in some models, date and time of day, because your temperature can fluctuate throughout the day. Yeah, that mean body temperature has decreased monotonically by 0.03 degrees Celsius per birth decade. Interesting. Because I was going to say, well, is it just like they're following this group of people who's getting older and like that has something to do with it, but they accounted for 
They accounted for all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And using some really cool statistical methods, which I won't get into, but people should check out the paper just because, yeah, I think it was, it was interesting how they were able to account for all those different things. But this is, I thought this was not only relevant to me in my sick times, but also relevant to the biomechanics community because this sort of significant and continuing shift in body temperature is a marker for metabolic rate. And it also provides us a framework for understanding changes in human health and longevity over the last 157 years, which is the time period they were looking at. And the researchers interpreted this finding of the decrease in body temperature as indicative of a decrease in metabolic rate. So your metabolism is going slower, you're producing less heat, thus your body temperature decrease. Hmm. And in fact, because of the increase in some factors that affect metabolic weight uh, rate, like body mass or weight, yeah. which have gone up over the years, right? We're getting bigger since we've gotten bigger since the industrial revolution, at least. They actually expected the metabolic rate would increase over time. So it's interesting right. that it's decreasing. Yeah. So it's interesting that it's decreasing over time. Yeah. That is really interesting. Also, I feel like there are studies that only measured like the temperature of men and like that's how we set the Mm. standard of 98.6 or something whereas women's natural body temperature is lower and I'm just like very passionate about raising the temperature (laughs) of workplace um environments (laughs) because I always I'm so cold and then I like I literally lose feeling in my fingers because I'm like so cold at work all the time but yeah and I also you know you're saying that you have been measuring your temperature a lot because you're sick and I measure my temperature like every morning it's the first thing I do before I get out of bed just no way because it can just to monitor like other things and health um so and that's been interesting to just kind of learn about the fluctuations and in that and how like different varying temperatures are uh, can just like tell you a lot about what's going on. Yeah. 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 I think it's so funny. That seems so natural that you would do that because it's such a natural biomarker when you're sick. Why, why not understand it sort of on a daily basis and what that variability looks like, especially on a personal level. That's, I feel like really important to know. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And especially if it's lower and then, you know, like I remember going to the doctor when I was sick and my temperature was like 99.9 and they're like, well, it's not a hundred. So you don't have a fever. (laughs) And I was like, well, my natural temperature is like low, like, like 90, like high 96 or like 97. Like it's not, you know, so then if you have like a couple of degrees higher, like that is like a fever for me, Mm -hmm, for you. Yeah. Yeah. But I like that you related this to, to like metabolic cost and like thinking about that in the biomechanics world. Yeah. Lots to think about. I will say for some reason, when I was sick, I was thinking about metabolic cost a lot because I was like, how much energy is it going to take me to sit up (laughs) or how much energy (laughs) is it going to take me to do this? (laughs) So got to love the biomechanics always on our minds. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, And now we can jump into our interview. All right. Hello, everybody. With us today is Dr. Elizabeth Russell Esposito. She is a research biomedical engineer and works for the Department of Defense Extremity Trauma and Amputation Center of Excellence at the Center for Limb Loss and Mobility at the VA Puget Sound in Seattle. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, for taking the time to talk with us today. 
Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we always like to start off with just your story of becoming a biomechanist. So we're curious on when you first knew that you wanted to become a biomechanist. I actually have a, what I think is kind of a nice story because I knew I wanted, or I found out that I was going to be a biomechanist before I even knew what one was. But before I get started, <laughs> because I'm a DOD employee, I have to give my disclaimer that all the views I'll express here are my own and not those of the government. So now we can now we can really get started. All right. But, <laughs> when I was at the University of Delaware, before I even started my freshman year, we had freshman orientation and they asked us, what do you want to do? And I was prepared for this. So I said, I want to do research in kinesiology to improve human performance and prevent injury. That's exactly what I told them. (laughs) And David Barlow, David Barlow was my academic advisor at the time. And he said, well, you're going to be a biomechanist. And I said, yep, I'm going to be a biomechanist. That sounds (laughs) sounds exactly what I'm looking for. And it was a really interesting undergraduate experience because there were only two of us in that concentration. Wow. And what that... Yeah. So what that meant for us is we had huge amount of hands-on learning and we had a lot of research experience that was afforded to us. And it was a much different undergraduate experience from my peers. And so that really led me down the path that I, that I went towards becoming a biomechanist. How did you come into undergrad knowing that and having <laughs> such a passion for wanting to study human performance? I think like a lot of people, I was doing sports. I was a student athlete in college. And so we're really interested in the sports realm of things. And after undergrad, I went to go intern at the Olympic Training Center for a little while. And I was very interested in the sports side of things until I realized all of the different applications that there were clinically as well. And so I shifted more from, you know, thinking, thinking kind of personally towards improving sports and performance and doing injury prevention towards more of the, the clinical applications and implications of a biomechanics degree. Well, that relates nicely with what you do now, right? That's exactly where you are at the CLIMB Research Group, focusing on preserving and enhancing mobility in veterans um, and others with foot and leg impairments. So can you just tell us about what projects and things you're currently working on or most excited about? Sure. Yeah, there's a few different ones right now. So one of the ones that I'm working on that I'm very excited about is a collaboration with Ross Miller at the University of Maryland. Ross and I have been working together since our graduate school days. And so what we're doing is taking some really interesting findings we had on um, metabolic cost in individuals with a baloney amputation where we were one of the first groups to find that individuals with baloney amputation do not necessarily have this inevitable increase in the metabolic cost of walking after an amputation. And this was always thought to not really be possible because a passive prosthesis, almost by definition, cannot generate net positive mechanical work. And so when we found these results, we were really interested in how we could get there. So how how we could make these results possible for other people, not just those who are afforded kind of the rehabilitation that the DOD gives their individuals with traumatic amputations. So we set off to do some modeling and simulation studies, and we'd previously presented some work on our one degree of freedom model, just kind of uh, just sagittal plane model. And so we've expanded that to a 3D 
um, musculoskeletal model where we're trying to use it to predict different rehabilitation outcomes that would be optimal for a person, different prosthetics parameters. So it's this really fun combination of what goes onto the person and then what also goes into the person. So you think of like what device can you put onto a person to improve their outcomes and then what sort of rehabilitation can you put into a person to improve their outcomes. And so that's one project that we've been working on that I think is it's been really exciting just to see how we can kind of bring some of these results to the larger population of individuals with limb loss. And then another project that I'm working on, we're calling Rocky Rehabilitation. It's this project <laughs> looking at ankle sprains and chronic ankle instability. So ankle instability is a huge problem within the military. And ankle sprains are oftentimes viewed as this very benign injury, but they can be career ending for a lot of people. And so 60% of sprains can go on to develop chronic ankle instability, which is a huge threat to the readiness of the military force and has downstream implications for the care within the VA that they receive for some of these chronic issues. And so during the rehabilitation, uh, people will get proprioceptive rehabilitation because it's not just a mechanical problem, it's also a sensory motor problem. And so they'll use BOSU balls and foam mats incorporated into their rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And so what we decided to do is let's take a step beyond the foam mats and BOSU balls. And so we have a treadmill that's covered in rocks and we're having them walk <laughs> on this rocky treadmill and doing the rehabilitation as on this, this rocky terrain. And we're seeing if we can do a little bit of training to the task to improve the muscle activation. So we're looking at EMG, we're looking at it from plantar pressures, and we may incorporate some biomechanical measures in there as well to get at some of the mechanisms by which this rehabilitation may be beneficial for people. So we have that starting up pretty soon. Wow. Are they barefoot while they're walking on this rocky treadmill? <laughs> no, no, they won't be barefoot. Um, there are some profiles of rocks that uh, work really well barefoot, but they have to be, they have to be a little bit uh, smaller than what we're using for both. <laughs> so think think like bigger than the little bumps that you have on a sidewalk that indicates when you're about to cross the street, but less than, you know, some of the boulders you might be imagining. <laughs> we're trying not to, we're definitely not trying to uh, injure people as part of the study. <laughs> and did you make this treadmill design with the rocks on it? Is that something that created or, yeah, how did you develop that? Sounds interesting. So Woodway, Woodway has a treadmill that you can screw on. You can screw on any type of like perturbation that you would want to put on there. And so we're using uh, rock climbing holds. Okay. That's awesome. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like that's so interesting in such a, a place of need to study because I mean, just from like my experience too, and having ankle sprains, it's always like, sometimes you feel like it's so much more than that. I think because the term ankle sprain has such a, like you said, like a benign kind of association with it, or like, it's not a big deal. It's just a sprain. And it's like, but then it can be chronic and have such a significant impact. And yeah, it's sometimes I've heard too, like from coaches, it's like, sometimes you just wish you just broke it and then it like could heal versus like a sprain is just so tricky and just everyone's so different and how they recover from it too. So yeah, so that's really interesting work. 
So what are you um, hoping to maybe learn from this that you think can then be applied in the military type situation or environment? Yeah, so we're trying to see if it can do a number of different things. So one, if it can improve an individual's muscle activations and resulting biomechanics. So looking at it from, from just that standpoint, but we're also looking at it from an outcome standpoint, looking at a number of patient reported outcomes. And then we're looking at it from the standpoint of, does it reduce the risk of re-injury afterwards? So we're following them for 18 months to determine if it decreases the rates of future injury or future receiving physical therapy, looking at uh, pharmacological and non-pharmacological means of pain management. So seeing if we can help from, from that standpoint as well. And what part in and, the rehabilitation process would they use treadmill like this? Um, like when do you know that it's like suitable or it's not too soon and they might get the most benefit from that? Yeah. So it's once they can start weight bearing. So doing, doing okay. more weight bearing activities. Yep. And so there's a specific stage of the rehabilitation process where it might not just be what they do the first time they go in there, but it would be once they can start fully weight bearing and doing all of those proprioceptive rehabilitation activities. And we will be starting people in a, an ankle brace the first time they walk on this. <laughs> okay. I feel like it could also just be very useful in a preventative approach too, in terms of training in the military setting. And also I'm thinking about trail running and like the number of ankle injuries mm-hmm. for that. And I feel like people, yeah, like trail runners would probably be interested in training in such a way that they can help prevent some of those injuries the first time. Exactly. Yeah. So this type of rehabilitation has actually been shown to improve performance even beyond pre-injury levels. So not only are we hoping to return somebody back to activity faster, we're hoping to return a more physically capable person after this type of rehabilitation than even before their injury. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. There's a lot in there besides just, just biomechanics, but having not just multidisciplinary research, but this really interdisciplinary research has been a lot of fun. And it's been really eye-opening for me when I get to work with the clinicians. I bet. and you've had people walk on this treadmill and go through this protocol or, or you're just starting? We're, we've received the, the funding for the study. And so we're just going to be starting it up soon. Oh, awesome. I was going to say, it'll be interesting to also just hear like subject feedback on like, you know, how they feel with this type of rehabilitation and walking on this brand new type of treadmill <laughs> probably to them. I agree. I can't wait. <laughs> I also was curious about with kind of, it seems like there'd be so much variation in how they're walking since one, it's not stable. And then two, it's, it's probably, they're not just repeating. It's not very like cyclic in terms of the motions that they're doing. They're getting a lot of variety. And so I'm curious how you're kind of taking that into account and how that affects some of the biomechanics that you're looking at. Like um, you said, mentioned like muscle activation and I'm sure you're looking at kinematics and other things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to be doing kind of a separate little project where we're comparing the differences with walking on the treadmill with rocks and walking on a, just a regular treadmill. So we can see what the differences are there that we see from a biomechanical standpoint. So I can't speak to those just yet, but maybe in a year or two at ASB, I can share those results. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be exciting. 
Yeah. And cool. How do you get people to not avoid the rocks or is that not possible? <laughs> I think it would be not possible. Uh, okay. <laughs> to, to not avoid the rocks, they would have to not walk on the treadmill. <laughs> okay. So it's like all rocks. They get off. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. All rocks. <laughs> Just checking, you know, or they jump to the side, you know, sometimes. We if they would about... to avoid oh, the rocks, they would be in the control group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes sense. <laughs> When we talked about how we met at ISB, ASB 2019 in Calgary, and you highlighted investigating women's specific footwear with prosthetic feet during your talk. And Hannah and I were just so interested in, in thinking about for the, for the first time, we thought about how prosthetics might fit into high heels and adapt for um, the needs of, of women that might be different than than the norm. And recently your team and collaborators shared updates on this project in March at a presentation to the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists in Chicago. And so we we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this, including also what inspired you to pursue this. Sure. So we had a woman when I was working at Center for the Intrepid in San Antonio, a woman prosthesis user came down to the lab and said, I walk better in my high heels than I do in my sneakers. And so the prosthetists wanted to see, okay, can you lend some biomechanical credibility to this statement? Can you see if she really does walk better in her, in her four-inch stiletto high heels than she does in her sneakers? And so one of my colleagues did a gait analysis on her and tried to determine, you know, what would make her say that she walks better and her high heels. And so we, you know, after a while, we started asking women prosthesis users, you know, how do you feel, how do you feel walking in high heels? So the ones that did use high heels and the three that we had talked to all said that they felt that they walked better in their high heels than they did in their wow. gym shoes. And, it, and so, so this we, is when we, they, on their other limb, they have, they're wearing a high heel instead of like a sneaker. Correct. And so we, we did some biomechanical analyses to try to determine if we could lend some credibility to this. And we used uh, things like global gait asymmetry index. And if we were to use something like a global gait asymmetry index, it turns out that what we think is happening is that they're more constrained on both limbs. So oh. they're, they're not just they're not just um, perceiving the limitation on their prosthetic limb. They really have a lot of gait limitations on, on both limbs. And so we put in, the team I'm working with is the Andrew Hansen at the Minneapolis VA now and his team there, and Maddie Major at Northwestern University and his team there. And so the, the three of us have put in, we're doing a series of studies on women prosthesis users now that have kind of spurred from those initial questions that we were asking there. And so now what we're trying to do is figure out what are some of the challenges and limitations that women prosthesis users face. So we have over 100 or we have 100 women prosthesis users who have responded to our survey to try to figure out what are the challenges and limitations. And so then we're using that to, one, start to develop prosthetic feet that can fit better within different types of shoes to include heels. And it's not just for women, it's for men, too, because especially being from Texas, cowboy boots. Oh, you can't yeah. fit a, <laughs> yeah, a regular prosthetic foot in cowboy boots. You need a heel height adjustable one. 
So we're figuring out what the challenges and limitations are so we can address them. And we've made a lot of progress in, in starting to address some of those limitations. And I have to give a ton of credit to Andy Hansen's team at Minneapolis VA for what they're doing with the actual development work. We're also looking at how the footwear changed the rigorously engineered properties of a prosthetic foot. So you have this foot, but then let's say you put a pair of like hokas that have a, a huge <laughs> on them. Does that change then the, the properties of the foot and how it was intended for the user? And one of the third things that we're doing is comparing from a, a biomechanical analysis of different adjustable heel height prosthetic feet and looking at how heel height adjustable feet that go up to about a two inch heel rise, how they can change some of the mechanics of a prosthesis user and comparing the different feet that are out there. So it's, it's been really fun. And I got one of my favorite reviews from a reviewer of, of one of our grants that I've ever gotten. And this reviewer said, it must be really, I'm paraphrasing, but it must be really challenging for a, a group of, of biomechanists who know that walking in high heels is going to make somebody <laughs> walk worse, <laughs> propose, you know, to do work in this area. But this reviewer recognized that that's the whole point of this. The point is not to make somebody walk in a way that we would perceive necessarily as better than something else. It's to give people options. And that's a really important part of community reintegration following amputation is the ability to wear the clothing that's deemed appropriate for a given situation. So it's, it's not up to us to figure out what the, the patients want. It's up to us to kind of respond to what they want. Yeah, it's so interesting to the motivation. Motivation, I think it, it seems like it came from a place where it was more like they they actually felt like they could walk better versus wanting to wear heels to go out or something like that. But um, definitely a, like fills in this need of have, being able to wear different types of shoes with heels. And I'm curious with the learning about that they've maybe felt more comfortable with a heeled shoe um, because there's more similar constraints. What are the type of constraints that they have that were mirrored by wearing a high-heeled shoe that made it feel more symmetric, I guess? You have a lot less range of motion of the ankle on the prosthetic mm -hmm. side anyway. And so with a high heel, you have a limited range of motion on both sides. So your ankle is actually more symmetrical. So all of the improvements in symmetry were at the ankle in large part. Wow. Um, so you don't have, you don't have a, a large push-off power with a, you know, with a prosthetic foot compared to your biological ankle, and you have even less so in the prosthetic foot. So I think, or, or within the high heel, so I think what was happening, and we don't know for sure, but I think that having the biological side constrained with the, with the shoe was causing people to perceive or maybe contributing to the perception that they walked better in high heels. I think it's so cool that you can take what someone's sort of subjective opinion of their comfort or their abilities are and with biomechanics and sort of an in-depth analysis, be able to try to kind of explain that and also not only explain it, but then use that to improve their care or mobility or enhance 
you know, their function. So I just think that's awesome that you have come from just that single person saying, I think I walk better in my high heels all the way through this really in-depth analysis and are now, you know, applying for grants and doing things that are going to be really impactful for a lot of people. So are you thinking of changing, like what are ways to change this other than wear a high heeled shoe? Maybe like if, if, how do you take the effects of that and then apply it to maybe when they're wearing like a sneaker or even like, as I'm thinking about working from home, like I'm always barefoot. And like, is that something that you would actually want to do then is then like apply these constraints to the other limb to make it, yeah, to feel more like similar and symmetric? I don't think so. I think we should try to work to get closer to the biological limb but really taking a personalized approach to things. Mm-hmm. So not just, you know, powered prostheses work great for some people. And, and some people really, really like wearing powered prostheses. It, I think it depends a lot just what that person is, is optimizing for. You know, if, if they're optimizing for fashion, that's one thing. And if they're <laughs> optimizing for, you know, biomechanics that are most similar to the biological limb, you know, that then that's an, another thing. But I think that's where we're striving to get to. You know, we're always using the biological limb as the comparison and trying to trying to make the the prosthesis get closer to to what the bio, biological limb can do. Mm-hmm. But I guess are you going to be more maybe specific in characterizing, it sounds like what the biological limb can do in this sort of new range of different, whether it's different shoes or different terrains or things like that, rather than sort of just this one plane of overground walking, maybe barefoot or something. Uh, no, we haven't, we, we haven't proposed any studies in that area, but now that you bring up the terrain aspect, that can be really, that can be really interesting. Yeah. Kind of combining these two, these different projects that you have. Yeah. Or just thinking about like, like you're saying, like, what is their natural walking setting or what is their natural movement setting and what does their biological limb look like in that setting? And how do we cater to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one, one of the questions we asked in our survey was, did you wear different types of footwear during your rehabilitation? So did anybody train you to walk in these different types of footwear? And uh, it was largely no, you know, you tend to wear your sneakers when you go to physical therapy. So there might be implications there for even just the the training aspects of it. And if it's important for somebody to wear a certain type of shoe or be able to walk on a certain type of terrain and do it, you know, in in the most biomechanically optimal way that they (laughs) they can to kind of keep themselves from getting injured and walk at a low metabolic cost and such, I, I think there's a lot of room there. That's so interesting. Did you glean any other insights from the survey that maybe were surprising to you or you found really interesting? Yeah, so we finished analyzing the the survey at this point, and so we're just starting to to write it up. But um, one of the things that we asked on the tail end of the survey is, you know, what what do you want in a prosthetic foot? You know, what kind of features do you want? And it's largely just more options and adaptable things that are adjustable. So if you kind of like a one size fits all foot, so I want a foot that I can wear with different shoes. I want a foot that is adjustable and flexible and I can have, you know, like a feminine fitting cover. So there was just a, 
a lot of implications for the cosmesis side of things, and then just the adjustability and adaptability of what people want in the prosthetic, of what women specifically want in the prosthetic foot. So we're excited. We're excited to take these results and then, you know, try to address some of the limitations that are out there. That's awesome. Do you think the sort of, it seems like there's two ways to go. Like you could have just a bunch of exchangeable feet or have this sort of one size fits all. And is that really what you'd like to aim for? Like, do you feel like you're sort of in line with what the users want? Or do you think it's easier or, or better to do sort of the like exchangeable foot or do you have insights on that? Um, so I, I can speak to a lot of that, but I should probably defer this question to <laughs> okay. my colleague who's leading the project on, on that. And so I'm contributing to the project where we're developing different feet. So think like a 3D printed foot that could go into a shoe for just a few dollars, you know, a 3D printed foot that could fit within any contour of a shoe. And then you have an adaptable and adjustable ankle component that can snap in. But it's really, it's, it's really my colleagues at Minneapolis VA who I should let speak to that work because they're the ones leading it up. (laughs) Well, thanks. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to uh, follow up with them and, and, uh, learn more about that. Maybe we could actually shift a little bit to what it is like working for the Department of Defense and what your day-to-day work like work looks like. Perhaps like maybe how being a researcher with a DOD differs from being a researcher in another setting. Yeah, so I think when people get out of grad school, they see two avenues. They see academia, they see mm-hmm. industry, at least that's industry. kind of yep. what I saw. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Yeah, and there's this whole other realm of the DOD research, but just clinical research too. And it, I think clinical research used to be a gate lab and doing clinical gate analyses um, to some extent. At least that's what I always saw. But um, within the DOD, there are just so many different organizations and military treatment facilities and um, just different DOD organizations that employ a large number of biomechanists to try to get at problems from injury prevention on one side of things to the rehabilitation on the other side. Personally, I very, very much like working within the DOD because it allows me to focus on the research, but it still gives me a lot of the opportunities to do some of the things that I would miss that if I, not being in academia. So you still get to, you know, you still get to mentor junior researchers and help them grow. Uh, There's opportunities for teaching and lecturing at at different uh, sites and organizations, whether that's within certain uh, Department of Defense schools or within local Mm -hmm. universities. And with with the pandemic, there's been, you know, more opportunities to do Zoom calls and things (laughs) like that and kind of broaden broaden the base a little bit more than if if we were doing all in-person meetings. So it's been it's been a wonderful situation for me. I, I really enjoy working with the service members. I really enjoy working with the veterans. It, it truly, truly is an honor to serve those who serve. And it's very exciting to see kind of the to see some of the outcomes that they've been able to get and to be able to watch people throughout the whole rehabilitation process and to know that you might have had a hand in helping them get to where they were. Wow. And it sounds like from your work, you've worked with lots of different teams and you have lots of different collaborators. How does that work? Uh, Like, do you facilitate those collaborations or are they sort of 
like looked at by the department and, you know, supported in different ways like that? Or just, just how do those come about? One of the best things about being in research is that you get to work with your friends a lot of time. <laughs> and it's, it's great. It's so nice to be able to do. I mean, these are the people you kind of grow up with professionally for some of them, and you get to kind of continue continue that work. So the work with Ross Miller at University of Maryland is a great example. We've been working together since grad school on, on different projects and, and being able to continue not only that those lines of work within musculoskeletal modeling and simulation, but you know also be able to grow it and push it professionally. And so that's been that's been really nice. And then this whole team science approach to things has been wonderful. NIH put out a publication uh, not too long ago where they really pushed kind of the team science approach to things. So it doesn't need to just be one investigator standing on their their own trying to do their their own line of research. It's more of a team of either multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary individuals trying to progress a line of research. And that has been, that's been so much fun for me because uh, I get to work with this, this national network of collaborators. And, you know, sometimes I'm the one trying to shape a proposal and figure out who can fill in, you know, all the gaps for the different areas that we need. And other times, you know, I'm the one who gets to contribute on somebody else's uh, grant or proposal if I fill in one of the gaps that, that they need. So I'm, I'm really loving this this team science approach rather than having to kind of go it on my own. It's nice that the NIH is supporting that too. Like it's not just coming. I feel like sometimes it's, if there isn't that maybe top down support, then it doesn't always get appreciated. But I feel like more and more, at least even just over like Melissa and I's grad careers, I feel like we've seen a big change in sort of collaboration and, and things like that. So I think that's really exciting. That's really great to hear. I'm glad that I'm glad that it's kind of being noticed. And because when I first started, I felt like I had to know a lot of the different pieces that were going into my proposal. So I needed to kind of be the expert in in all these different areas that I really didn't have the the expertise, and I didn't necessarily uh, have the network just starting out to be able to draw on either. And so working with the DOD, that opened up a huge number of doors for me and just exposed me to more researchers uh, within the field. And so it's been really nice to, you know, to not feel like you have to fill in all the gaps for everything and you can kind of stay in your lane and where, where your expertise is and then just bring on other investigators to contribute to it. That's so exciting for us. I think we're both very passionate about integrating different research together and, you know, using the skills and expertise that other people have to really make the biggest impact that you can in your research. And I think only by, you know, being able to, yeah, to lean on others is, is really like the way that you're able to do that. So it's, it's also cool, I think, for us to hear that from someone, yeah, in your, like in your career now that that's really important to your work. And I think really inspiring for us to hear. So thank you for sharing that with us. Can you tell us about a time? um, We like to talk about failure a lot on the podcast. Is there a time in particular you can think of that you felt like you failed and share what you learned from that experience? There are absolutely failures that I can talk about. So the first 
I'll, I'll give you two actually. And so one of them I'm going to tell you about is, is one that I talk about often. It's, you know, the, the metabolic cost of walking and how we found that it, it's not greater in individuals mm-hmm. with amputation, um, at least for the service member population that we found with a baloney amputation. And so we started a study before we ever had this finding. We started a study that uh, where we were trying to use a number of different methods, like we were using real-time visual feedback to try to minimize the co-contraction that might lead to a greater mm-hmm. metabolic cost. We were trying to increase the push-off force on the prosthetic foot and train people to do that with real-time biofeedback. And we were trying to minimize the center of mass way that might lead to, you know, greater muscle activations and a greater metabolic cost. So we were trying to, we were trying to reduce metabolic cost using three different avenues. And we were able to get people to respond and, and respond and do the, respond to the biofeedback in the direction that we wanted them to, but it had no impact on the metabolic cost of walking at all. And it wasn't until we started looking at it and saying, well, they're not greater than controls. And we kept thinking, well, this can't be right. This can't be right. This can't be right. Because there's 30 years of literature telling us that we're probably wrong. (laughs) We stuck to it. We, We made sure that we controlled all the different variables that could be affecting our outcomes as, as tightly as possible uh, and did some follow-up studies where we found out that we actually d- were finding these results. And then the British Royal Forces or the investigators who work with the British Royal Forces were able to replicate our results also. And so that was, that was kind of exciting, but it was, a little, it was a little stressful to put it out at first. And so we, com- we completely failed at trying to get them to reduce their metabolic cost using our biofeedback strategies but it ended up being one of the most exciting findings that, you know, I've had within my career so far. So, you know, that's one of those, I, I know people try to turn failures into success and say, there's no such thing as failure. Necessarily. It's just this, this path towards a new direction. And it certainly led me in a new direction, especially with trying to figure out how to get these results for the, the general population. But the other, the other time I would say that, maybe I've, I've failed is not including, especially being a clinical researcher, somebody who works with patient populations and the rehabilitation and outcomes of, of patient populations after extremity trauma and injury is not involving the clinicians soon enough. And that's something I had to learn the hard way. And now if, if one of the clinicians doesn't support or if the team of clinicians doesn't necessarily support an intervention we're thinking of or a methodological approach, that we're thinking of, if it's not going to make a big clinical outcome, we don't necessarily push it forward the way we might have done in the past, where we're looking at the literature to see what the problems are and what the solutions are and and figuring out the path forward based on reviewing the literature. Now, after we review the literature, we go to the clinical teams and have them involved in every step of the process. And with that, and the clinical teams have really taught me to take more of a patient-centered approach. So a lot of times in biomechanics, we will average our data and we'll run stats on our data. And if we have a low p-value, we'll say, okay, this is a a successful intervention or this is not a successful intervention. When in fact, you might've had some responders in there and some non-responders. And if you think about this from like a vendor's standpoint, um, let's say 25% of your 
people like to foot. You could report it that you just captured 25% of the market, which is huge for any vendor out there. Or you could say we failed and 75% of our, our sample really didn't like what we were what we were trying to do. So mm. kind of looking at it from that standpoint also uh, is something I've had to learn over the years that if when you do have have responders to something, those responders may be key to figuring out what the next steps of the research are. Yeah. And I think that those are huge lessons that you've learned from two pretty significant like failures, but like yeah, I hesitate to even call them failures because of the immense learnings you've had from them. And I love that Melissa and I are huge sort of proponents of design thinking and empathetic interviewing and really knowing your population and your stakeholders. And so I think that last piece about really involving the clinicians and talking to them early is just really hugely speaks to us and and what we uh, believe in. So thank you for sharing that. We're coming up on our last question here, which is one of our favorites and very future thinking. So it's, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? Uh, so for the future of biomechanics, I'm, I'm really excited by some of the, the wearable technology that's out there and being able to get outside the biomechanics lab to answer some of the questions. Now it has to, I think it definitely has to be the right question. There's certainly a time and space for a motion capture system and force platforms, depending on what the question is. But I think the wearable technology and being able to get out into the real world environment allows us to ask questions that we couldn't ask previously. And Mm -hmm. so it's an area I'm certainly trying to learn more about. I can't wait to get get into uh, a little bit more than I am. And I'm really excited for the wearable technology. The other area is kind of the computational modeling. And so using musculoskeletal modeling and simulation to do more of like a personalized approach for things. I was, I pulled up Mark Grabener's book. I have it open here. But I pulled up Mark Grabener's book and I looked at the copyright. It's 1993 and it's current issues in biomechanics. And chapter three is human gait from clinical interpretation to computer simulation. So apparently this is something we were thinking was going to be a something on the forefront of biomechanics back in 1993. I still think in 2000. It's really exciting how far we've come with that and what we might be able to do with that coming up next. And especially with the advancements in computing speed and being able to generate results in minutes instead of Mm -hmm. Uh, days at this point. (laughs) That's been really exciting just to be able to get results a lot faster because that's a big step forward towards getting getting this into potential clinical practice or getting components of it into clinical practice where it it might have some key uses as far as, you know, looking at prosthetic parameters, for example, of course, because that's kind of the near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I think you touched on so many things that we're also excited about in terms of wearables and monitoring people in more of a natural setting. And I like your point with, we're also always very excited about taking more of a personalized approach to rehabilitation. And I like your point on using computer simulations as one way to do that as well. And just being able to take advantage of the improving technologies and getting those analyses done quicker. So yeah, so we can learn more and 
yeah, continue to help more people. So we really appreciate that. How can people follow you and learn more about your work? So that's a great question. <laughs> I am not very active on social media, so that would, but I, <laughs> but I, I am, I am trying. Some folks have threatened to make a Twitter account for me. So <laughs> When we got the the Rocky Rehab uh, grant, one of my colleagues said, you know, how are you going to advertise this? You know, how how are we going to announce the grant? And I said, um, well, I, I just sent you all an email to let you know that we got the grant. <laughs> and he goes, no, um, I'll I'll put it out on on science Twitter. And I said, oh, science Twitter. Tell me tell me more about science Twitter. <laughs> Unfortunately, right now, Medline or Google Scholar or PubMed is probably one of the easiest ways. But please know that I am I am going to try and I am going to get better at having more of a, a social media presence to see so you can see some of the things that we're working on these days. That sounds great. Actually, and I tried to look you up on Twitter and found that <laughs> you actually do have a bit of a presence in terms of other people sharing your work and talks and being inspired by, yeah, being inspired and sharing your work. So, yeah, but it will be <laughs> fun to um, be able to interact with you on that. But, yeah, I think that just using uh, what we know, too, and just looking up some of your work um, will be really helpful if people um, are interested and, and want to learn more. So thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. We loved learning more about your studies and then also just what it's like to work for the Department of Defense. It was a new perspective that we hadn't heard before. So um, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on here. And thanks for doing this. This is wonderful. Thank you. All right. Well, that was just such an awesome interview. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did and had a lot of fun. And now we're going to move on. Elizabeth shared two really awesome and insightful failures from her career. And so we'll move on to sharing some of ours. Since I have not been doing much work over the past few weeks, I actually don't have any fails to share. You can't you can't fail if you don't do anything, it turns out. <laughs> but There's think- a lesson to learn. <laughs> if you're never doing anything, you're never failing. <laughs> But I think Melissa has been super active and I think she has some fails. <laughs> super active. <laughs> I don't know if I would say that, but like I try to do like one thing every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I recently, I feel like almost had like a very bad failure in that. As you know, I'm working on this psychological intervention and a lot of interventions I was looking at usually tested on a sample size of like 60 to 80 people. And I was writing up kind of an outline of the project, including like how many participants I'm expecting to recruit and things like that. And then I was talking with someone and I was like, yeah, I haven't done like a, an official kind of power analysis on this yet. I was just looking at other studies and and I was like, I really should do that though. Like I should do that. Um, and then I was reading this book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And oh, I love that book. It's so good. And he talks about the error of like small numbers where the extremes can happen are like more likely to happen in smaller sample sizes. And then you're more likely to interpret it as like in one 
way or the other. Like, for example, they one study with I think Bill and Melinda Gates had a study where they looked at the sizes of schools and then the like academic achievements and found that smaller schools tended to have or were associated with the higher achieving students. Mm-hmm. So then they invested a lot in, um, oh, in smaller. smaller schools. And then, but then they didn't ask the converse question like where, what type of schools are the lower achieving like students associated with? And that was also smaller schools just because <laughs> smaller schools have smaller number the of extremes. students. And so then they, <laughs> yeah, they had the extremes. And I think a good example of that is like, if you have like three, I don't know, if you have like three coins, like you're probably more likely to like flip them all like heads than if you have like 30 coins and then like flip Mm. all of those heads or something like that. So I think, does that make sense? Or it could look, (laughs) well, like, yeah, I think it's just that if you have those three coins flipping all heads, then you, it'll look more severe than having, well, I just think, Technically, that shouldn't be how probability works, but I think... Yeah, I think I might have said that. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. It sounds, it's one of those things that feels like it should be right, but then there's like this other I little thing in me. Before I just start talking, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. What's yours? So back What's to your study. Uh, so my fail was I did a, a power analysis, like accounting for, you know, previously found like effect sizes and all the things that you should account for. And like, I need to recruit probably like 300 people for each. Group. Oh. So, which is fine because it's going to be like online. So I can't oh, do right. that, but it was just, yeah, I was just like, wow, I would have been like so far off and it would have just been such a shame to do the whole study and not be able to, yeah, to make any conclusions from that. So just another PSA, make sure, (laughs) make sure you're doing those power analyses. (laughs) That's awesome. I I mean, an important learning and it way better to know that now, like fail early, right? And now you can actually have the impact you want. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. That was a great fail. Of course. It's so great to see you again. I've missed you the past few weeks. So <laughs> glad that you're back at it and we were able to uh, record this episode of Boom. Thank you everyone for listening to Biomechanics on Our Minds. Thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics who sponsors the podcast and makes all of this possible. And if you all would like to submit a research fail, someone to interview, if you'd like to get involved with Student Voices or any of our episodes, please email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at biomechanicsoom. Biomechanics, biomechanics off, off our, our minds. minds. <laughs>